I would invite you to turn in your copy of the Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is where I usually say, if you don't have a Bible to call your own, I know many of us have them on our phone and things like that, and that's great and that's well and good, but if you would like to have a Bible to call your own, we have some for you, and I would just encourage you to come up to me after the service. We would love to give that to you as our gift. It will be in the translation of the scriptures that I preach from, very faithful translation of the original Greek and Hebrew. On July the 22nd, 2013, 66-year-old hiker Jerry Largay disappeared from the Appalachian Trail in a secluded part of the Maine wilderness. Uh, she had become disoriented after stepping off of the trail, and in the dense largely untouched forest of Maine, she was unable to get back to the trail. She was unable to get a text message to send from her phone calling for help. You see, Maine is one of the most densely forested state in the United States. It's actually the most densely forested state in the United States. 83% of it is trees. And much of it remains just as it was 500 years ago when Europeans began settling the area. She was cut off from communication. She was cut off from food and shelter. She survived for 26 days before she succumbed to exposure and hunger. Investigators concluded later that very tragically, at least two canine teams had come within a hundred yards of her final campsite, but they just didn't connect. Her campsite and her remains were not found until 2016, some three years later. A question that believers need to ask and answer is this. Will God provide for us on our spiritual journey? Or has He left us alone to our own wisdom and our own devices and our own skills, cut off from help and cut off from communication? Will he promise to supply us with what we need? Or is what Jesus did largely just something that we look back on? It's a past experience. It's easy to answer these questions here sitting in church in the nice little tidy Sunday school way that we know we should. Of course God will provide for me. My God is a God who Provides, But the reality is, friends, if we're gut-level honest with each other, if we're gut-level honest with ourselves, much of our anxieties arise from wondering whether or not God is really going to care for us. Wondering whether God is really going to provide for all of our needs. Friends, the one point that I hope to make today is this. 
the past faithfulness of God to save us secures for us the assurance that He will be faithful into the future. If God has been faithful to save you, that is like a down payment. It's like Him hitching His wagon to you. It's like Him staking His claim, staking His name on you, saying, I will not leave you alone. And friends, this is incredibly good news. That the gospel and its impact into our life is not merely something that happened one day a long time ago when we got baptized. The gospel secures for us the knowledge that God, who has begun a good work in us, Philippians 1.6 says, He will finish what He starts. Amen? Amen? Isn't that good news? This is the point that Paul is trying to tell the church at Corinth. And here's why that's important. Because remember, as we said last time, this is only sermon number two, but sermon number one, where we were going full geek mode and doing all of the background information, the church in Corinth has a lot of issues. And Paul, instead of writing them off because of all of their issues, Paul steps into their situation with them like a wise older pastor, and he links arms with them and walks with them through all of their issues and all of their mess. And what Paul is going to say today to the church at Corinth is, Hey, Corinthians, I know that you're messed up. I know that you still have a long way to go. I know that you have issues, and I'm going to have to get very specific about those issues, and a lot of uncomfortable things are going to come out in this letter. But for right now, I want you to know that because God has saved you, you can be sure that He will not leave you. And so we today hear this. We hear the Bible telling this to 1 Corinthians, and we know that we can apply this truth to our lives as well. So here is point number one. Point number one is this. This is how Paul goes about encouraging them. He finds the good and praises it. We know that there's going to be a lot to come that is not praiseworthy. Paul is going to tell hard things to this church. But for right now, he begins his letter by saying, Here is how I see God working in you. Praise God for it. He says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you. Now, let's just pause right there. I mean, this church has caused and is about to cause Paul a lot of grief. I mean, he's having to do tough love with these people, and it's only going to get more intense. As we looked last time, he's got all these letters, he's got all these visits. He calls one of his letters a painful letter. And he calls it one of his visits a painful visit to them. 
And even in the midst of this, he's able to say to them, inspired by God, so we know he's not lying, I give thanks to my God always for you. He's remembering them in prayer. He's praising God. He's like, he, he does not allow his mind to be filled up with all the problems and all the issues. Instead, he says to himself in the privacy of his prayer closet, God, thank you for the Corinthian church. Thank you for what you have done in them. And that's how he begins. I, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. You see what he's doing here? He's not exactly saying, I'm patting you guys on the back. He's saying, I'm thankful to God because God did a work. That's distinct, right? He's not buttering them up. He's not trying to gas them up and, you know, blow smoke. He's praising God for God's work, working the gospel into their hearts. Verse 5, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. So now he gets very specific. He says, not only do I see that God has saved you, I see that there is actually a couple of very specific fruits that has cropped up among you. God has not simply had a bunch of people come down in, in a big evangelistic crusade and fill out a card. Actually, God has changed you. He says, and I see these two ways. Your speech is different. Your speech is better than it used to be, and your knowledge. You seem to be growing in what you know about the gospel and about God. The fact that Paul gets very specific, friends, I think is a lesson to us. We need to be willing to do this too. We need to be willing to see the good and praise it. I know uh, how I am set up and how I'm built, and hopefully over the years the Lord will continue to sanctify me, but I can be a pretty, I don't know, it's very difficult to, uh, to impress me, right? And so because of that, sometimes it's, it's difficult to encourage me. Things are... A lot of the time, things are going better than I think they are. I don't want to call myself a pessimist. Every, every pessimist says I'm just a realist, right? I'm just you know, seeing things the way they are. But we need to be able to see the good things that God has done. We need to be able to see the good things in other people and to praise God for it. Maybe it's that difficult coworker that you are around more than perhaps you would prefer to be. Christian, find the good and praise it. Maybe it's your EGR person in your life. You know what EGR is, extra grace required. Maybe with your EGR person, you need to begin practicing finding the good and praising it. Maybe... You have to have a difficult conversation with your kids. You need to sit down and have a difficult parenting conversation. And it might seem to your kids like anytime mom or anytime dad comes to me, it's always with a correction. I would just encourage you, 
find the good and praise it. Like sit down and, and, and go first and tell your kids what you see that's good about them before you have to have the, the difficult conversation. Uh, sometimes there are tough interpersonal situations that I find myself in, uh, and, and I just have to keep saying over and over in my head, this person is an image bearer of God. And at a baseline level, because this person is an image bearer of God, they deserve my respect. They bear the very image of God. I may be frustrated with this person. I may be inconvenienced by this person. I may question whether that person has grasped the gospel. I, I may even be sinned against by that person, but that person is an image bearer of God. Find the good, find what is true, Philippians 4, and praise it. This is pretty slick of Paul. I, this isn't just like a marketing strategy for him. This isn't just like a conflict resolution strategy. He really believes it. But if you think about what he's, he's doing, he's setting up the ability to talk to people, the ability to say difficult things. He's purchasing credibility up front by saying, it's not all bad. I see what God has done in you. And we're going to have to talk about some things. We're going to have to sort out some issues. But by the way, there is good here. He's not talking to them like one of the churches in the first couple of chapters of Revelation are addressed. They're in danger of losing their lampstand or they have lost their first love. Paul says, I see God working in you. Find the good and praise it. Secondly, Paul does this. He sees the fruit of the gospel. He sees the fruit of the gospel. Look at verses 6 and 7. They say this. He gives them this, I don't know, he praises God for the good things that he's seen in them. And then in verse 6 he says, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see what he does there in verse 6? He connects, he connects the good stuff that happened in their life to their coming to believe the gospel. He doesn't simply say, hey, I see that you cleaned up your speech. That's great. He doesn't simply say, hey, I see that you've grown in knowledge. That's great. He says, I see these things, verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. He's saying, as you came to know the gospel, these changes were produced. He says, it's because you came to know the gospel that these changes were produced. That's what verse 6 means. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Friends, let us see what the Bible is saying here. We are not saved by our gifts, our knowledge, our speech. We're not saved by how well we use our gifts. We are not saved by our good works. But 
when Christ changes a person, there will be fruit. Do you see that here in verse 6? There is change. There is transformation. There is war against sin where there used to be love of sin. There is humility where there used to just be pride. There is love and affection where there used to be apathy. When Christ saves a person, He changes a person. There is fruit that is produced. Charles Spurgeon put it this way in his book uh, that dealt with... um, Salvation, and that was uh, using an illustration from uh, the Pilgrim's Progress. Charles Spurgeon said this, Do you mean, says one, he's, he's entertaining an objection here, Do you mean, says one, that, that I am to believe that if I once trust Christ, I shall be saved whatever sin I may choose to commit? I have never said anything of the kind. I have described true salvation as a thorough change of heart, so radical a kind that it will alter your taste and your desires. And I say that if you have such a change wrought in you by the Holy Spirit, it will be permanent. For the Lord's work is not like the cheap work of the present day, which soon goes to pieces." That's what he's not saying there. He's not saying that those who are saved will somehow all of a sudden become perfect. What he's saying there is that there's a change of affections that comes with genuine salvation. There's a desire to be repentant. This is what Paul is doing here. He's highlighting in verse 6, he's saying The stuff, the changes that I see in you, church in Corinth, the changes that I see in you are evidence that the gospel has taken root. He's connecting those two trains run down the track together. And so, friends, how can we apply this? Well, I would say this. As we engage in genuine gospel work here at Trenton Baptist Church, we can expect to see the curse of the Garden of Eden rolled back little by little. It won't be perfect here. We're not in heaven yet. But we can expect some of those thorns and thistles to be choked out by the work that God is doing in the hearts of believers. We can expect to hear less gossip. We can expect to hear less backbiting and rabble-rousing. We should expect to see a growth in humility. As Matt Smeathurst and others have said, a mature Christian is hard to offend and easy to edify. Isn't that a good quote? A mature Christian is hard to offend and easy to edify. We should expect to see a growing distaste for sin. We should expect to to see a growing desire to make sacrifices so that the gospel can go forward. We are funding the gospel. We're going on mission. We are praying and we are leaving our comfort zones to take the gospel to those who are near to us but are far from God. In a word, friends, we will not be perfect, but we should expect to not be the same. 
We should expect that the gospel gives us a new set of desires, as it did in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And friends, this lays the foundation for everything that will come later. When he has to say hard things about church discipline, why would he even talk about church discipline? Because the mark of a believer is repentance. Not perfection, but repentance. When he has to say things about the Lord's Supper, he'll be like, guys, you ought to know this because you have been saved, right? Bear fruit in this way. When he talks about sexual immorality, when he talks about divisions in the church in chapter 3, it's all founded on this principle in the opening of the letter that coming to Jesus produces certain new desires. And he writes this letter knowing that those in the congregation who are genuine believers will hear it and will love it and will change. This is how God works. He works through His Word. Point number three. Our last point. Trust your future. To a faithful God. Verses 8 and 9. We will consider here. Verse 8 says this. I really need to begin in verse 7. So that the sentence makes sense. So that you are not lacking any gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. By whom you were called. Into the fellowship of his son. Jesus Christ our Lord. Up to this point you may have been wondering. Greg what did your illustration at the beginning of that sermon. Have to do with your first two points. Well hopefully now. It will make sense. What Paul has been saying to the church in Corinth is I was there when God saved some of you heard your testimonies now that some time has passed I have seen your fruit your speech has been changed your knowledge has grown and based on that Paul is encouraging them guys Jesus will take you all the way home. Friends, this is a great encouragement if you, if you wrestle with assurance of salvation. Do not trust in yourself. Don't try to think back really hard to your conversion. Was I really, really genuine? I mean, did I know enough? No. The, the reality is this. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The way, one of the ways that we can be assured of our salvation is do we see God working in us now? And if we see God working in us now, changing our desires, changing our loves, causing us to, to want Him more and to grow in Him, that can be a source of, of assurance that God is continuing what He started and God will finish what He started. Do you see that? I hope that's encouraging to you. So, so don't be looking to yourself and asking, am I good enough to be saved? That was never the question to begin with. Jesus came because you were not good enough. Don't look to yourself and say, well, I failed in this 
this number of, of, of ways, I, I wonder if I'm now outside the bounds. The question is, when you fail, do you feel conviction for sin and do you want to run to Jesus and stop? That's evidence. Only God does that. The world doesn't produce that. Satan doesn't produce that. God by His Holy Spirit, produces that kind of change inside of genuine believers. God finishes what He starts. And so friends, rest in Him. Rest in the finished work of Jesus. The fact that God has worked in your life in the past is a kind of surety. It's a kind of guarantee that He will not leave you alone. He is not done with you. Galatians 3.3 tells another truth, the, the, the other side of this coin. Are you so foolish? He asked the Galatians. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? See, here's how the enemy creeps into our hearts in our moments of weakness. You might reason to yourself, well, I know that I was saved by grace, but what about now? Have I, have I lost it? I know that I was saved, but, but what, what about now and into my future? Is it all up to me? Is it like God has just kind of filled my backpack with a bunch of cliff bars and pointed out the vista off in the distance and gave me a compass and said, best of luck, make it as far as you can, maybe 26 days, maybe 32, I don't know. Do the best you can. Galatians 3.3 says to the Galatians, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What he's trying to remind them of is that the same God who gave them grace to believe the gospel, the same God who enabled them to trust in Jesus, the same God who opened their blind eyes so that they could see the gospel and believe that it was good, that same God and that same grace will walk with you all the way home. And that is very good news. Of course we need to work. Of course we need to partner with God. But it's not all on us. God has promised. He will give us grace. He will grant to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So if you're working through a tough parenting problem, the same grace that saved you is available to carry you. If you're battling with an ingrown sin that's just quite frankly it's hard to dislodge from your life the same grace that saved you will carry you if you're fearful captive to anxiety worries and uncertainties and weaknesses they seem to have a, a, a chokehold on you the same grace that saved you is available to carry you. So I'll try to address three people here. I'm sure there are more categories represented in the room, but maybe you're a questioner. You're curious about these things. You're questioning them. So to the questioner, if the faithfulness of God 
as a source of comfort sounds strange to you, if what I've been talking about, that God has been faithful in the past, He will be faithful in the future, if that sounds strange to you, can I invite you to venture just a little bit further? I would love to talk to you about Christ and the comfort that He brings. Maybe you're on the fence. And this sounds good, but quite frankly, if I come to Jesus, I'm going to have to make some changes, and I just don't know if I've got what it takes to leave these things that I love. I don't think I'm strong enough. Could it be that the reason that you lack so much peace is because you have never fastened your life to anything that is ultimate, that is eternal, that is really secure. Charles Spurgeon tells this story about a man who is in the river just above Niagara Falls. And he's floating downstream. The current gets very quick before it goes over the falls. And, and if you're not fastened to the shore, you will go over. And the survival rate is pretty grim of those who go over the falls. And, and uh, he tells this story about a man on the shore who has this very kind of rinky-dink rope. But he throws that rinky-dink rope way out into the, to the river, into the current. And the man who's about to go over the falls holds on to it. And that rope is thin, it's small, it's probably not the most expensive you would buy at Lowe's, but it holds on to it. And he's able to be slowly reeled in to shore. But as the man is holding on to that rope that doesn't look very strong, and as he is being reeled into the shore, there passes by this huge stump and trunk of an oak tree. And that thing looks a lot bigger and sturdier. And so he lets go of the rinky-dink rope and he holds on to what seems bigger and heavier and more secure. But by holding on to what seems like it might save him, he goes over the falls with it. Because that's an analogy of the gospel. This gospel message, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, is foolish. It doesn't look impressive. But it can reel you into shore. And many of the things that are attractive and that look big and glamorous and seem large and weighty, if you lash your life onto them but they themselves are adrift, just go over the falls with it. I would encourage you to consider, have you ever lashed, fastened your life onto that which is eternally secure? Would you see that the love of God directed toward you by offering His Son to live the perfect life that you failed to live, die the death on the cross that you should have died, but it, He did it for you to pay for your sins, would you come and receive Him? It's a simple message. It's a foolish message. But it's like that rope that can save. And to the Christian, let me remind you, you 
can trust this God who has been faithful to you in the past because his past faithfulness is a guarantee, it's a surety to you that he is walking with you. He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion. So when daily, when daily your doubts and anxieties arise, preach this truth to yourself. Christ is a faithful friend. Let's pray.